Well, hello everyone. Might as well get started here. I uh, want to welcome you all to Rare Book School and uh, thank Jeremy DeBell uh, for working with me uh, on this uh, on this event. Um, and thank you all for coming. Um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Tom Mole, an old friend of mine. I've known him for about 15 years uh, as, I can't believe it's been that long, but I counted it up. Uh, that's that's <laughs> sad. Um, uh, and has, he's been, a, you know, really, uh, for uh, most of that time, a leader of the conversation at the intersection of Romanticism, uh, book history, and, and more recently, the digital humanities. Educated at Bristol uh, and formerly a faculty member at McGill University, Tom has since 2013 been a reader in English literature and the director of the Center for the History of the Book at the University of Edinburgh. Um, he's the author of Byron's Romantic Celebrity, Industrial Culture and the Hermeneutic of Intimacy, which came out from Palgrave in 2007, and most recently the co-editor of the Broadview Reader in Book History, published uh, by Broadview in 2014. Uh, Tom's written scores of articles related to Romanticism and 19th century print culture with a particular focus on Lord Byron, our initial shared passion, I suppose, and has been awarded a number of major grants from Shirk and uh, the Research Foundation of Quebec, the latter of which supported the influential Interacting with Print Group. Um, and Tom's also a member of the Advisory Board of Nines here at the University of Virginia, and we're ha that's part of the reason that he's here and we're co-sponsoring this event. Um, it's also worth noting to this crowd that Tom is currently supervising Tess Goodman's dissertation at the <laughs> University of Edinburgh, former RBS uh, stalwart. Um, as a scholar, Tom casts nets both wide and fine, moving from big data to the local instance across the field of poetic production and reception with surprising insights that offer to reorient our perspective on 19th century poetry. So I'm very much looking forward to his talk today, Scattered Odes in Shattered Books, Romantic Poems in Victorian Anthologies, and I ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Tom Moll. Thank you very much, Andy, for that generous introduction. Thank you to Nines and RBS for uh, inviting me to speak today. Uh, I hope one day to return Tess to you uh, <laughs> relatively unharmed. <laughs> one warm evening in the 1890s, a young man and a young woman sat down together in the shade of the trees at the bottom of a garden in an English village and read poems to one another. Shaping their relationship through the shared experience of literature, they were reenacting a scene of reading repeatedly depicted in poetry, from Dante's Inferno to Hunt's The Story of Rimini. We don't know if their reading had the erotic charge of Paolo and Francesca's, or even if they were aware of their ill-fated poetic predecessors. Neither Willie, an apprentice carpenter, nor his friend Laura, a post office worker, had more than the most basic formal education and they owned no more than a handful of books between them. But Willie did own an anthology of poetry. There were probably many scenes of reading similar to this across the country and across the century which left no historical trace. This one survives because it was recorded in Flora Thompson's slightly fictionalised memoir of village life, Candleford Green, 1943, part of her trilogy, Lark Rise to Candleford. Laura is Thompson's alter ego, Flora, Laura. This is what she says. Willie was fond of reading too and did not object to poetry. I like that, not object to poetry. <laughs> Somehow he had got possession of an old shattered copy of an anthology called A Thousand and One Gems, and after office hours, Laura and he would sit among the nut trees at the bottom of the garden and take turns at reading aloud from it. Those were the days for Laura when almost everything in literature was new to her, 
and every fresh discovery was like one of Keats's own magic casements opening on the foam. Between the shabby old covers of that one book were the Ode to a Nightingale, Shelley's Skylark, Wordsworth's Ode to Duty, and other gems which could move to a heart-shaking rapture. Anthologies, as this passage indicates, were very widely read, even, perhaps especially, among those who had access to very few books. Anthologies were assigned in classrooms, given as school prizes, used for elocution manuals, penmanship practice, and preparation for public examinations. They structured the leisure of many 19th century readers looking for pleasure or self-improvement, and embedded literary works in the cultural and educational institutions that produced a new class of civic and imperial administrator. But in Thompson's description, the book's superior contents is at odds with its inferior form, which is old, shabby, and shattered. Anthologies were often thought of as books for amateurs and tyros who skipped and dipped and were disproportionately female, as opposed to serious readers, often by implication male, who immersed themselves in collected editions. Offering the choicest poetry in the cheapest formats, anthologies circulated the most refined thoughts to the most unrefined readers. Thompson's description also hints at how anthologies affected the reception of their contents. Obviously, obviously, the choices of the anthologist determined what the anthology's readers read. But the discourse of the anthology also shaped how the poems it contained were read. In this passage, the word gems, which the anthology uses in its title, very common uh, title word, quietly that word quietly becomes Thompson's own in the following paragraph. Her description of the poems that were held in that one book endorses the anthology's self-depiction as a casket of jewels overflowing with treasure, a magic box containing multitudes, a window onto an undreamt-of world. In reading the anthology, Laura is learning not only how to enjoy literature, but also how to deploy it. Describing her anthology reading, she elevates her diction into a lyrical mode, a heart-shaking rapture, and freely quotes Keats's Ode to a Nightingale to make her point. Thompson's description of Laura's rapturous awakening to the power of poetry is itself modelled on Keats's description of his own rapture in On First Looking Into Chapman's Homer, a poem that also appeared in Willie's anthology. Both Keats in Chapman's Homer and Laura here, through Keats, represent themselves standing on the edge of literature's unexplored ocean with an exhilarated sense of potential. But both of them also foreground the channel through which literature is mediated to them. Chapman's translation, Willie's shattered anthology. The anthology Willie owned was a thousand and one gems of English poetry, edited by Charles Mackay, which first appeared in 1867 and went through 23 editions by the end of the century. Its depiction of poems as gems, small, attractive and timelessly valuable, was a common trope among 19th century literary anthologies. I've counted over 30 with the word gems in the title. It suggests the premium placed on short forms in the anthologies and of their dedication to lyrics above all. And this raises a problem for the anthology's handling of romantic poetry since many of the most famous romantic poems are long, narrative or even epic. How would a collection of poetic gems find room for such romantic poems as the prelude? What about the excursion? 
the White Doe of Ralston, the Ancient Mariner, Thalaba the Destroyer, the Curse of Kahama, the Lay of the Last Minstrel, Marmion, Queen Mab, Alastor, Prometheus Unbound, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, the Corsair, Don Juan, the Eve of St Agnes, Lamia, the Forest Sanctuary, the Siege of Valencia, the Improvisatrice, or the Story of Rimini. The problem here isn't thematic, but formal. Even if the subjects and ideas of romantic poetry continued to appeal to Victorian readers, there was a mismatch between the formats in which that poetry originally appeared, usually as individual poetry volumes, and the formats in which poetry from earlier periods mostly circulated to wide audiences in the later 19th century in gift books, annuals and anthologies. To handle this mismatch, 19th century anthologies functioned like magic casements opening on the phone. They offered a portal to the oceanic breadth of romantic poetry, while also framing and limiting the reader's view of it. Using the British Library catalogue as a starting point, I identified a corpus of 210 literary anthologies published in Britain between 1822, when Shelley died, and the end of the century. Having identified the corpus, I examined each of the 210 books with the help of uh, student assistance and a grant from the FQRSC, um, and we recorded information about the front matter and arrangement of contents, as well as each poem or extract from a poem by Lord Byron, Felicia Hemans, or Percy Shelley that appear in them. The resulting database is a powerful research tool. It contains details of 210 anthologies containing 1,055 poems or extracts from poems by Byron, 554 from Hemans, and 402 from Shelley. These data can be queried in sophisticated ways, allowing us to see not just which poets were most commonly anthologised, but also which of their poems were most popular, which sections of long poems were anthologised, and something about how those selections changed over time. Developing a variant then on the distant reading advocated by Franco Moretti, this approach nonetheless involves careful examination of the volumes in the corpus, attention to textual variants, and close reading of the anthology's paratexts. It is therefore a contribution to what scholars like Martin Mueller have now begun to call scalable reading. Anthologies promoted certain short poems within an author's oeuvre, giving them a prominence they didn't have in collected editions or critical accounts. Byron's The Destruction of Sennacherib, Hemans' Casabianca, and Shelley's To a Skylark all appeared so regularly in anthologies that they gained a cultural currency far beyond them. The destruction of Sennacherib, the Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold, was one of the most popular poems by Byron in the anthologies. This six-quatrain poem appeared 35 times in the anthologies surveyed and was always published in its entirety. And this makes it the second most quoted piece of Byron's poetry after all, and the poem most often quoted in full. Sennacherib is included more than twice as often as the next most popular lyric, On This Day I Complete My 36th Year, and almost three times as often as She Walks in Beauty, which is now far better known. Lord Byron's poet, work in poetry may best be described as splendid, commented one author in a footnote to Sennacherib, but its splendour is often lurid or gloomy, for the poet's life was reckless and profligate, and his wealth of imagination and language was sometimes perverted to evil uses. Given this view of Byron's life and work, Sennacherib had obvious attractions, 
like a jewel salvaged from the rubble of Byron's moral ruin, displaying all of his splendour and none of his profligacy, a memory of better days before the perversion of Don Juan set in, and an indication of what Byron could have achieved if his wealth of imagination had been better invested. Sinatra, Casabianca and Tua Skylark all appeared far more often in the anthologies as the century went on, and their popularity snowballed as later anthologies copied earlier ones. Sinatra appeared only six times, there's a lot of numbers coming up in this sentence, Sinatra appeared six times in the 78 anthologies surveyed between 1825 and 1849, the first 25-year chunk, that's 7.7%. Then it appeared 19 times in the 75 surveyed between 1850 and 1874, 25.3%, and then 10 times in the 51 anthologies surveyed between 1875 and 1900, 19.6%. So if you take it, split those anthologies into three 25-year periods, it's not that much, really quite substantial, and then a slight drop-off in the third. Casabianca is a similar story. Uh, Three times before 1850, that's 3.8%, 14 times in the following 25 years, 18.7%, and 10 times in the last quarter, 19.6%. To a Skylark, same thing. Uh, Three books before 1850, 3.8%, but massive rise in popularity in the next 25 years, appearing in 21 books, that's 28% of the total, and then in another 12 in the following 25 years, 23.5%. So these poems became more widely known through the century as more anthologies included them. Before the anthologies started reprinting them, they were not thought of as among their author's most important poems. When Sennacherib was first published in Hebrew Melodies, 1815, it was not often singled out for special attention. Of the 15 reviews of that volume that appeared, only two quoted Sennacherib. Casabianca appeared in the monthly magazine in August 1826 and was then reprinted with the miscellaneous pieces at the back of the second edition of the Forest Sanctuary. Right, Hemans could hardly have hidden it better. It's in, the, it's in the back of the second edition. So its publication was therefore very modest and unlikely to attract attention. Neither periodical poetry nor subsequent editions of poetry volumes were commonly reviewed, and the poem went unnoticed in the press. To a Skylark was the last poem in Prometheus Unbound with Other Poems, 1820. In his Long Blackwoods review of the volume, John Gibson Lockett mentioned the poem in passing. There is an ode to the West Wind, another to a Skylark, and several smaller pieces. That's all he says about it. <laughs> but it was not otherwise discussed in reviews, with the exception of the Dublin magazine, which quoted it in full, as conveying some general idea of Shelley's style. The destruction of Sennacherib, Casabianca, and to a Skylark, then, all initially occupied rather minor places in their author's collected works and the reading public's consciousness. But once the anthologies began to reprint them, they became some of the best-known romantic poems of the 19th century. One reason these poems were so popular in the anthologies was that they were so often chosen for recitation. Sennacherib and Casabianca are both of manageable length, with regular tetrameter lines to pronounce stresses, anapastes in Sennacherib, I am's in Casabianca, and heroic subject matter. Both incorporated strong elements of balladry in their narrative content and quatrain form, making them especially suitable for speaking aloud or for hearing. As such, they became central texts in the tradition of percussive romanticism, identified by Andrew Elfenbein, who notes that percussive romanticism dominated the 19th century popular recitation anthologies. 
many readers looking for poems to recite, found them in anthologies, and anthologies were specially designed to provide material for recitation in a symbiosis that ensured the popularity of Sinatra and Casabianca throughout the second half of the 19th century. Shelley's To a Skylark does not seem to have been such a popular choice for recitation. It belonged to what Elfenbein calls patterned romanticism, in which sonic harmonies were more important than metrical stresses. These patterned poems were thought of as less suitable for recitation during much of the 19th century, but Elfenbein shows how they gained in popularity at the end of the 19th and into the 20th century with the rise of a new style of recitation backed by professional training, promoted through competitions and popularised in gramophone recordings. The most anthologised poems by Hemans and Shelley, leaving Byron aside for a moment, their most anthologised poems had originally appeared in a very narrow selection of their published volumes. And within these volumes, they were typically relegated to sections of miscellaneous poems at the back, like Afterthoughts. Hemans published 19 volumes of poetry in a career that spanned 27 years. But 14 of her 15 most anthologised poems came from just three of those volumes, published in a three-year period. Seven were from Records of Women with Other Poems, 1828. Five were from The Forest Sanctuary with Other Poems, second edition, 1829. And two came from Songs of the Affections with Other Poems, 1830. These were the volumes that, according to Susan Wolfson, clinched Hemans's fame, when, as Paula Feldman writes, her poetic career was at its height. If we look at Shelley, the story is quite similar. Percy Shelley published 14 books in a 12-year period, and then Mary Shelley edited his posthumous poems for publication two years after his death. But his most anthologised poems came overwhelmingly from only one lifetime volume and posthumous poems. Of the 14 most anthologised poems or extracts by Shelley, nine were originally published in posthumous poems, 1824, and four in Prometheus Unbound and Other Poems, 1820. Mary Shelley collected her husband's magazine poetry and uh, many um, uh, unpublished manuscript poems, uh, what she described as many miscellaneous poems written on the spur of the occasion and never retouched, found among his manuscript books. She included them on the grounds that every line and word he wrote is instinct with peculiar beauty. I do not know whether the critics will reprehend the insertion of some of the most imperfect among these, she wrote in her preface. The most anthologised poems by Hemans and Shelley had originally appeared in groups of miscellaneous pieces, often gathered in distinct sections at the back of their published books and labelled as such. Among the top 15 poems or extracts by Hemans reprinted in the anthologies, all five from the Forest Sanctuary volume came from the sections entitled Lays of Many Lands, one poem, or Miscellaneous Pieces, the other four, and not from the title poem. One of the poems from the volume Records of Women came from the title sequence, while six came from miscellaneous pieces included at the back of the book. Two, uh, sorry, one of the two from Songs of the Affections came from the title sequence, and the other from miscellaneous pieces. So, overall, only two of the 15 most anthologised poems by Hemans came from sequences, only two out of 15, and none of her most anthologised poems were from long poems, were extracts from long poems. Likewise, only three of Shelley's 16 most anthologised poems were extracts from long poets. Passages from Queen Mab, Mab Alastor and the Chenchi, some of which I'm going to talk about in a moment. The rest all came from the miscellaneous poems that occupied the last 50 pages of Prometheus Unbound with other poems, 
or the 90-page section of miscellaneous poems that, in, that form the largest subdivision of posthumous poems. Neither Hemans nor Shelley seems to have thought very highly of these miscellaneous poems. As Susan Wolfson notes, Hemans repeatedly used the heading miscellaneous pieces, or something like that, at the back of her volumes for poems previously published in periodicals, not forming sequences, which increased the income of her labour and widened its circulation. Periodical publication ensured a steady cash flow, allowing Hemans to profit from her poems a second time when they appeared in volumes. Both the amount and regularity of payments for her writing were especially important after her husband left her in 1818 with no other means to support their five sons. It has ever been one of my regrets, Hemans reflected late in life, that the constant necessity of providing sums of money to meet the exigencies of the boy's education has obliged me to waste my mind in what I consider mere desultory effusions. Hemans' miscellaneity was a response to circumstances rather than an aesthetic principle. For Shelley too, miscellaneous lyrics seemed incidental to his sense of his own vocation and achievement. He withheld many of his shorter poems from publication in his lifetime and, like Hemans, he never published a mature volume of poetry that did not begin with a long poem that gave the book its title. The anthologies promoted to the centre of Shelley's oeuvre poems that Shelley himself considered peripheral or unsuited for publication. The miscellaneous nature of these poems by Hemans and Shelley may have made them seem suitable for anthologies because they were not that firmly anchored in their original publication contexts. While editors might have hesitated to reprint one sonnet from a sequence, a miscellaneous poem offered itself to the anthology with few strings attached. This preference in the anthologies that I'm talking about for short standalone poems over long sequences, uh, long poems or sequences, was also gendered. In Hemans' case, it supported the perception that women were incapable of sustaining long poems because they were unsuited for either the lofty conceptions or the extended intellectual application required. Women rarely succeed in long works, wrote Francis Jeffrey in his review of the Forest Sanctuary their natural training rendering them equally averse to long doubt and long labour. John Neal, writing in Blackwood's magazine, characterised Hemans as an essentially feminine poet and therefore most herself when writing in short forms. Her poetry, therefore, that which I call her poetry, the tender, profound and spiritual part of it, is only to be met with in her smaller pieces, he claimed. Her friend and biographer Henry Chorley chose his words carefully when he wrote that one or two of Hemans' lyrics were certain to survive so long as the short poem shall be popular in England. Anthologies reinforce this perception of Hemans as a writer of short, feminised lyrics through their editorial framing of her poetry. One editor wrote, she has too rarely concentrated her energies on a single topic and has consequently produced no great poem worthy of her talents but many of her scattered odes are among the noblest and most affecting lyrics of our language. They resemble in their effect some of those wondrous snatches of music that, when heard, imprint themselves on the memory at once and forever. Another anthologist described these miscellaneous poems tartly as 
an immense number of fugitive pieces of various merit, admired rather, it may be presumed, for a certain elegance and taste than for their originality or profoundness of thought. William Davenport Adams, in uh, a very popular anthology, The Student's Treasury of English Song from 1873, concurred both in associating Hemans with the lyric and in patronising her with muted praise. Her genius, he said, was rather lyrical than dramatic and is seen to better advantage in short lays and ballads than in her sustained efforts. Her longer works are now little read, though containing many graceful and tender passages, but some of her briefer songs will always occupy a place in our English anthologies. Hemans, in fact, produced long poems throughout her career and identified the long poem as the height of her aspiration. My wish ever was to concentrate all my mental energy in the production of some more noble and complete work, she wrote to a friend three months before her death. But it was not her long poems, but her miscellaneous poems, which she described as written as if in the breathing times of storms and billows. It was these, rather than the long poems and sequences that Hemans herself thought of as her greatest achievement, that lent themselves to miscellanies such as the literary anthologies. There, the perception of miscellaneous writing as feminine meshed with the perception that anthologies were suited to women readers. Feminised writing circulated readily in a feminised publication venue. The same gendered set of assumptions operated on Shelley's posthumous reputation. If short poems were the natural home for female poets, and Shelley was represented as most at home when writing short poems, then he was feminised by a kind of dubious syllogism. Davenport Adams praised Shelley for feminine-coded qualities while denying him masculine ones. Shelley, Davenport Adams said, possessed imagination, fancy, an exquisite sense of melody, a high and spiritual feeling. But he lacked judgment, unity and depth of thought and the power of realising his abstract conceptions. You can see how Davenport Adams is drawing there on the same kind of rhetoric that Jeffrey is using to uh, assess Hemans. Lacking sustained intellectual power, Shelley was constitutionally unfitted to write a successful long poem, just as Geoffrey had argued that women poets were. He could be praised only for his short lyrics. Let it be owned, however, Davenport Adams continued, that Shelley was great as a lyrist. For readers of the volumes Shelley and Hemans published in their lifetimes, or the collected editions that began to appear after their deaths, both poets appeared as writers of long, dramatic, narrative or discursive poems, or in Hemans' case, of poetic sequences, in which a number of shorter poems were designed to be read one after another. These long poems and sequences anchored their published volumes and gave them their titles, and they dominated their collected works. For readers of the anthologies, however, Shelley and Hemans were not primarily writers of long poems or sequences. Instead, they were writers of short lyrics, most of which had appeared among sections of miscellaneous pieces in their published volumes appearing first in some cases in the contingent context of a periodical, surrounded by other poetry and prose that their authors could not control, they travelled to the new context of a volume where they appeared under the rubric of miscellaneity, which asserted that the context of the poems that now surrounded them was more accidental than meaningful, and that each poem made sense on its own rather than in relation to the collection as a whole. And that ability to travel into new poetic and publication contexts made it easier for them to travel again into the new context of the anthology, where they were situated within a gendered editorial discourse, and where the supposed femininity of miscellaneous writing 
was reinforced by the supposed femininity of anthology reading. So here, given more time, I would go on to talk about how anthologists deal with sort of medium-length poems, poems of several hundred lines that are very difficult for them to include as a whole, um, but where what they have to do is figure out what to leave out um, rather than finding what to put in. Um, but I'm going to... Uh, I could talk about that more uh, in questions, but I want to move on now to think about romantic book-length poems, where the question is not what do I leave out, but how do I find a bit to put into the anthology. So anthologists developed several strategies for handling book-length romantic poems that they could not reprint in their entirety. And they often began by disembedding the lyrics that had been embedded in long poems. John Wesley Hales introduced his very popular anthology Longer English Poems, 1872, with a discussion of Walter Scott's poem Rosabelle, without once mentioning that these lines were originally part of the Lay of the Last Minstrel from 1805, where they appeared as one of several lyrics sung by different poets taking part in a competition. Francis Jeffrey had already excerpted Rosabelle in his review of the lay in the Edinburgh Review, where he called it one specimen of the songs which Mr Scott has introduced into the mouths of the minstrels. But in Hales's anthology, the lines were treated as a fully independent poem, floating free of their poetic context. Similarly, Child Harold's Good Night, reprinted 13 times, and The Castled Crag of Drakenfels, reprinted nine times, were disembedded from Byron's Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Two anthologies presented The Castled Crag as addressed to Byron's sister, an assumption for which the poem provides no support that I can see. Four songs were disembedded from Hemans's The Siege of Valencia, the opening ballad sung by Zimina, reprinted twice, Teresa's song, Why is the Spanish Maiden's Grave So Far From Her Own Bright Land, reprinted once, and the nun's chant, beginning, A sword is on the land, reprinted twice. Oh, and the eight-line funeral hymn, beginning, Calm on the bosom of thy God, reprinted once. These examples are all marked as distinct lyrics in their original context by introductory gestures, such as, Dust to the elements he poured his last good night, or, or a change of metre, or stanza form, or stanza numbers that are not continuous with the rest of the poem, uh, shift from Roman to Arabic numerals, for example, uh, or subheadings, or stage directions, or changes in page layout. They're all marked as uh, separated off. And these kinds of embedded lyrics were a common feature of romantic long poems and some novels in the period, and were often reprinted in 19th century anthologies. In some cases, these embedded lyrics have, were already thought of as detachable. In the Siege of Valencia, the embedded lyrics were typically treated not as extempore effusions by the characters, as they are, for example, in Anne Radcliffe's novels, where often a character facing a sublime landscape will suddenly be moved to uh, you know, a, a sonnet or something. Um, they're not treated like that. Instead, they're treated as songs that the characters already know. Um, characters repeatedly draw attention to the particular circumstances in which the song is sung or heard and the effect of this context on its meaning. Teresa, Zimina's maid, indicates that her song is already well known to her and her mistress when she introduces it with the words, Rest here ere you go forth, and I will sing the melody you love. The song she sings, Why is the Spanish maiden's grave so far from her own bright land, which Hemans wrote for the play, has many of the characteristics of Hemans' most popular short poems. It tells the story of a woman's death in a faraway land as a result of her devotion to her husband and her faith. After hearing the song, Zimina remarks, 
These notes were wont to make my heart beat quick, as at a voice of victory. But today the spirit of the song is changed and seems all mournful. Simoner acknowledges that the song's current context is only one of its possible contexts. Its meaning is inflected differently when it is heard in different circumstances. The Siege of Valencia then is self-conscious about how its songs can be detached from the context in which they are presented. While Hemond's miscellaneous poems moved easily from one context to another, the lyrics she embedded in her own long poems could be detached and deployed in other contexts. Even familiar lines, Zimmerner suggested, gained new dimensions of meaning from this redeployment because the spirit of the song was changed by the circumstances in which it was encountered. When Why Is the Spanish Maiden's Grave was reprinted in the anthology Lyrical Gems, 1825, under the generic editorial title Ballad, with no reference to the play in which it first appeared, the editor was in a sense extending an understanding of the poem that was already implicit in Hemond's verse drama. But the anthologies also disembedded lyrics that were clearly not presented as detachable from their first publication contexts. And the best example of this is The Isles of Greece from Don Juan, reprinted 23 times in the volume Surveyed, making it the fourth most popular piece of Byron's poetry and by far the most often quoted section of Don Juan. The anthologies handled The Isles of Greece as though it were a freestanding lyric, abstracted from its poetic context and detached from its specified speaker. In Don Juan Canto 3, Byron spends 70 lines explaining that context, introducing the poem speaker, a sad trimmer, and locating the poem as the utterance of a particular man at a specified time in his life, occupying a particular social situation in a stated location for a particular audience and with a specific set of mixed motives. Jerome McGann has argued that the poem speaker blends elements of Robert Southey and Byron himself, creating a complex, layered, mobile, self-conscious poetic utterance. In the anthologies, this careful specification of the poem's speaking voice and the occasion of its utterance were sheared off. Lyric abstraction was not an inherent property of the Isles of Greece then, but something ascribed to it by the anthology's handling of it as, in the words of Lyrical Gems editor, one of the first lyrical compositions of modern times. Disembedding lyrics that had been embedded in long poems provided a paradigm for the anthology's approach to romantic long poems more generally. Anthologies extracted sections from long poems and treated them as though they were independent short poems. Examples from Byron include the description of the dying gladiator and the address to the ocean from Child Harold Canto 4, which is incidentally the most commonly reprinted bit of Byron in the anthologies that we found, the address to ocean from the end of Child Harold. Uh, also the description of a thunderstorm from Child Harold Canto 3 and the lines beginning Tis Sweet from Don Juan Canto 1. Speeches from plays could also be uh, disembedded in this fashion and treated as though they were independent monologues and this happened to Manfred's soliloquy on the Jungfrau on nine occasions in the anthologies we surveyed. When passages that suited their purposes did not exist, editors intervened to create them. Five speeches by the priest Hernandez in scene two of Hemans's The Siege of Valencia were stitched together into one long monologue in Lyrical Gems, 1825. In it, Hernandez tells Elmina how his... He tells her a, a long story about how his son deserted Spain's armies to fight for the Moors and how Hernandez later met his son in battle and slew him in ignorance of his identity. In the anthology version... 
Elmina's interjections were elided, as well as all remarks Hernandez addressed to her directly, including a whole speech of 20 lines. In each case, in each elision, the first half of one line was stitched to the second half of another, with the intervening lines silently omitted. Mm. Hemans very often does, um, you know, ends one character's speech halfway through a line and picks up another, so they, they stitch those together. In some cases, the text was altered to fill up the meter. The editor called the resulting poem The Monk's Tale, although Hernandez is not a monk. <laughs> this synthetic poem is a monologue of 89 lines, carved out of 122 lines in the source, a compressed oriental tale in blank verse, and a ready-made piece for speech day declamations. <laughs> Having been created in one anthology, it was then reprinted in another with identical elisions and variants. I've only found two examples so far, but I'd love to see more uh, examples of this made-up anthology poem. In most cases, the anthologies then extracted lines that were not marked rhythmically or typographically as distinct sections of the poems in which they first appeared and were not printed separately in any authorised publication. While some early readers presumably singled out these sections as highlights of the long poems in which they appeared, there's no evidence that they thought of them as easily detachable from those poems. In excerpting these sections then, anthologies were effectively creating short poems that did not exist before. When several anthologies followed each other in excerpting the same passage from a longer poem and treating it as though it were an independent poem, they collectively reshaped an author's oeuvre and the canon of English literature as a whole. The anthologies thus promoted an anthological approach to long poems which encouraged readers to view them as collections of short highlights connected by more prosaic or undistinguished linking passages. In this, they followed and extended a romantic line of thought already developed by writers such as Coleridge, um, who asserted that a poem of any length neither can be nor ought to be all poetry. Or Keats, who described a long poem as like a garden in which the reader could wander and select the beauties that most pleased him or her. And this was extended later in the century by Poe, who said that a, a long poem is an impossibility. Right? Poetry is necessarily short. <laughs> Reflecting on the attribution of two noble kinsmen, Coleridge wrote in the margin of the play that he was almost certain it was by Shakespeare, except that some of the writing was unrelieved by any lyrical interbreathings. Coleridge here takes the mark of genius to be not simply the ability to write sublime lyrics, but the ability to embed lyrical passages within longer poems, where, a little bit like the breathing of his infant son in Frost at Midnight, they fill up the interspersed vacancies of the thought. Right? Coleridge takes the mark of genius to be not simply the ability to write lyrics, but the ability to embed lyrics within longer poems. Monique Morgan has shown how 19th century long poems, including the prelude and Don Juan, embed moments of lyricism in their narrative form. Literary anthologies gave an independent existence to such lyrical breathing spaces, reprinting them alongside short poems written as if in the breathing times of storms and billows, as Hemant had put it, for readers like Laura and Willie, pausing for breath in busy lives. Anthologies treated long poems as collections of short set pieces, nuggets for extraction, and marginalised poetry that could not be made to conform to anthological modes of presentation and reading. We can see these strategies at work in the anthology's treatment of Shelley's longer poems, Queen Mab and Nicenci. In each case, the lines most often anthologised from these poems were passages of natural description. 
With its youthful radicalism and the outspoken attacks on religion, monarchy, and contemporary society, Queen Mab was especially difficult for anthologists to handle it, a bit of a hot potato. Its publishers had been successfully prosecuted in the past, and so there were good reasons for anthologists uh, and editors and publishers to be cautious about how they handled it. Nonetheless, extracts from it appeared in 11 of the books I surveyed. Seven of those books included only one extract, two printed two extracts, and two found room for four extracts. Between them, they printed nine distinct passages from the poem, two of which overlapped with one another. Seven of those were only reprinted once, so I'm not going to talk about those, but four anthologies reprinted a passage from the beginning of Canto 1 up to line 8. One of them went up to line 8, one of them went up to line 30, two of them went up to line 44. Right, so it's the same passage. These lines describe Ianthea sleep, in a sleep that resembles death, and yet, Shelley writes, is quite unlike it. But the most commonly anthologised passage from Queen Mab was the opening of Canto 4, which was reprinted eight times. The Literary Gazette, in its otherwise very hostile review of 1821, singled this passage out as the noblest piece of poetry the author ever imagined. It begins with a description of night. How beautiful this night. The balmiest sigh which vernal zephyrs breathe in evening's ear were discord to the speaking quietude that wraps this moveless scene. Heaven's ebon vault, studded with stars unutterably bright, through which the moon's unclouded grandeur rolls, seems like a canopy which love had spread to curtain her sleeping world. The passage goes on to describe the snowy hills surrounding the speaker, the castle visible in the distance, whose banner hangeth o'er the time-worn tower, so idly that rapt fancy deemeth it a metaphor of peace. These lines provide the only hint of discord in the scene, in their very faint suggestion that only rapt fancy would see them flag as a metaphor of peace, while a more clear-eyed and disenchanted observer might see it as a sign of strife. The speaker then reflects that this scene is one where musing solitude might love to lift her soul above this sphere of earthliness, where silence undisturbed might watch alone, so cold, so bright, so still. Five anthologies stopped there, while another three extended the extract uh, a little bit further. As a whole, Queen Mab employs what Mark Sandy calls an introduction of fantastical reverie for the narrative's mainstay of religious and political polemic. Fantastical elements like this are blended in with polemic uh, through the text, especially in the poem's central cantos and the prose notes on free love, necessity, atheism, Christian dogma, and vegetarianism. The Literary Gazette found this passage acceptable, even noble, because it bore no trace of Shelley's opinions on these topics. <laughs> By extracting calm moments such as this description of the night, or the description of Ianthe sleeping, anthologies inoculated themselves against Queen Mab's radical content, protected themselves against prosecution, and reiterated their focus on Shelley's lyrical and descriptive poetry. The most anthologised passage from the Cenci was also uh, a description. It's the description of uh, the, the place that Beatrice marks out for Count Cenci's murder, um, where a, a black rock hangs over a gulf with terror and with toil, even as a wretched soul, hour after hour, clings to the mass of life. Shelley had marked this passage out in the preface to the play as the only one that could be described as mere poetry. 
He says, I've avoided with great care in writing this play the introduction of what is commonly called mere poetry. And I imagine there will scarcely be found a detached simile or an isolated single description unless Beatrice's description of the chasm appointed for her father's murder should be judged to be of that nature. That's the only bit of mere poetry in the play. Passages of isolated description were something Shelley sought to avoid in the Cenci, but they were exactly what the anthologies wanted, exactly what the anthologies valued most in his poetry. And so in Queen Mab and the Cenci, the only passages excerpted in several anthologies were passages of natural description, extracted from their narrative or dramatic context. By reprinting these passages, the anthologies acknowledged Shelley's achievement as an author of long poems, even though they reprinted his short lyrics much more often, while insulating their readers against the political radicalism of Queen Mab or the horror and moral complexity of the Cenci. When they extracted passages of natural description from Queen Mab or the Cenci, the anthologists weren't seeking a manageable part that faithfully represented the whole. Leah Price writes that each anthology piece functions, at least in theory, as a representative synecdoche for the longer text from which it is excerpted. She talks about the anthology's synecdochic aesthetic. But these examples suggest that the approach of 19th century anthologists to romantic long poems was really fundamentally not synecdochic. In extracting these lines from the long poems in which they first appeared, the anthologists sought not a synecdochic excerpt from the longer poem, but a standalone substitute for it. So, how I'm going to finish now by just thinking briefly about how we should understand the cultural work that the anthologies are doing and how we might theorise it. And it seems to me that there are two um, ways we might approach that. A pessimistic understanding of the anthology's effects on reading of romantic poetry would dwell on the ways in which they censored or misrepresented their contents. This understanding assumes that the relevant interpretive context for poetry is either its author's oeuvre as a whole or the context of its creation and first publication. When the anthologies remove poems from these contexts, their artistic power and richness seems to be diminished. On this account, anthologies reduce the formal variety of romantic poetry, marginalising forms of writing that did not share their focus on lyric brevity and contributing to the lyricisation of literature in the 19th century. They flattened out the complexities of romantic poetry's speaking voices by obscuring their individualising features. In doing so, they made romantic poetry seem more earnest and less ironic, as though the Isles of Greece were written in Byron's own voice, and Hemans unproblematically endorsed every word of Casabianca. At the same time, they made it seem as though romantic poets could only speak in their own voices, however individualised, while Victorian poets experimented with the new form of the dramatic monologue. The anthologies also removed poems and excerpts from the context of the poetry that surrounded them, the context of their first publication, and the social, economic, political and historical contexts of their first production. The poems in Willie's anthology were as shattered as the old shattered book itself. Shattered, but not dead. A more optimistic reading of the anthology's cultural work would argue that the shattering of romantic long poems was actually key to ensuring their continued vitality. Roland Barthes in S.Z. describes his practice, or S.Z. as you call it on this side of the Atlantic, uh, describes his practice of breaking the text up in the manner of a minor earthquake into blocks of signification or lexias in order to facilitate analysis. He calls the result le texte étoilé. Richard Miller translates étoilé as starred. 
on étoilera donc le texte. We shall therefore star the text. Uh, but we could also translate it as shattered. We shall therefore shatter the text. A shattered car windscreen, for example, can be called étoilé. For Bart, this process of shattering is initiated by the commentator. It is arbitrary in the extreme and produces a broken text, text brisé, which, separated from any ideology of totality, cannot be reassembled. It is therefore part of Bart's project of empowering readers. The text is shattered to make active reading possible. Bart's text étoilé might point the way to a more optimistic understanding of the anthology's cultural work. Breaking long poems into short sections made those sections available for reading by people who might otherwise have overlooked them. It must have directed some anthology readers, at least, to approach long poems or volumes of collected works wholesale. And it encouraged readers who had already read the long poems to consider parts of them in more detail. While Barth's method of shattering the text is a tool in the hands of the empowered reader, the anthologist uses a similar procedure to administer long poems to readers. Nevertheless, anthologists could not control the readings they made possible. The anthologies then made possible new kinds of encounter with romantic poems, some of which, at least, must have taken the form of the resistant readings that Michel de Certeau calls poaching. To ask which of these accounts, the more pessimistic, the more optimistic, which of these is correct, seems to me to be less important than to recognise how deeply implicated each is in the other. The anthologies censored poems in the process of circulating them, but also, paradoxically, circulated poems in the process of censoring them. Even poems as ideologically problematic for readers in Victorian Britain as Queen Mab and Don Juan appeared in the pages of anthologies, albeit in a drastically reduced form. The anthology made romantic poems conform to Victorian media of cultural transmission, and in the process elided elements of those poems that seemed alien or threatening to Victorian sensibilities. But as they did so, the volumes examined here acted as capillaries of cultural transmission, circulating romantic poetry to new generations of readers. While the anthology's paratexts attempted to shape the responses of those readers, they could not finally control them. And so these 210 books containing thousands of poems and extracts, produced tens of thousands of moments of reading, some of them culturally dissident, most of them historically fugitive, in schools, evening classes and universities, reading societies and public libraries, at kitchen tables and in attic bedrooms, and in an English village, at the bottom of a garden, in the shade of the trees, one warm evening in the 1890s. Thank you. Tom would be happy to take some questions or comments. Uh, who were these editors? Were they mostly in-house, or were there schoolmasters involved? Um, that, that's a good question with a complicated answer. Um, the anthologies that we surveyed cover quite a wide variety of subgenres. Some of them are designed for use in classrooms, some of them are uh, given as Sunday school prizes, some of them are sort of for use in the home, some of them are aimed specifically at young people, some of them are not, some of them are aimed specifically at men, some are women. So there's quite a wide variety. Um, some of them, uh, it, it's a fairly substantial subset were edited in-house. Um, it's, not, it's not always possible to distinguish the editor and the publisher. Um, the rest were mostly edited by 
you know, those kind of Victorian men of letters who, uh, some of whom were, in educational anthology, some of whom were educationists or schoolmasters, um, and, and some of whom were kind of, you know, jobbing writers and editors. Um, I don't think so. Um, some again, it depends on what kind of anthology you're talking about. Some of the, in some cases, where they're educational anthologies, they're primarily educational publishers. But I think quite a lot of um, publishers took on an anthology as a good seller. You know, it was one of the kind of bread and butter titles that could pay the bills for other more speculative projects. Um, although our Research suggests that the market was fairly crowded for anthologies. Nonetheless, if you know, if you um, could, uh, you know, if you could uh, publish an anthology that sold, you could certainly then go through many editions of that anthology. And that's this gives me an opportunity to acknowledge one of the shortcomings of this research before somebody asked me about it, um, which is that the the sort of statistics that I've drawn on don't take any account of sales figures. Um, they're just, they're simply not available. Uh, they're available for some anthologies, but they're not available for enough to, for us to uh, weight the figures in any meaningful way. And so when I say that eight anthologies or 30 anthologies reprinted this poem, I can't distinguish between, you know, one of those anthologies might have been the Norton anthology of its day, and another one might have been a poem, an anthology that fell stillborn from the press. And at, at the moment, we, you know, we just, I, I cannot see a way to kind of solve that problem. Um, so all I can say is that you know we found something, and we have to sort of acknowledge the limitations of the methodology. There. Yes. To, to build on that, I actually think your way of reading one way one thing you did was you kind of made, made a contents of all of these books, and you kind of read the contents, and you looked yeah. at how they're broken up. And I think it it addresses that that limitation a little bit. But I'm actually really curious to push you on more things you probably thought about. Uh, when I see anthologies of poetry, they're op they often have a lot of evidence of being read a lot mm. and passed on from person to person. Yes. And so when I hear these kind of arguments about you know, the market, what are people reading, I think about lag, right? Yeah. And I don't know if I was a reader under a tree whether or not I'd be reading last year's book alongside a book from 20 years ago, or do I read last year's book against a book from two years ago? And have you do you have progress on like the effect of lag and Yeah, I mean that's that is really tricky. So um yes, in that case, um with the anecdote that I started with, she's writing in the nineteen thirties about her childhood in the eighteen nineties when they're reading a book that you know was published first in the eighteen seventies. So um so with and and which she acknowledges is you know an old shattered copy. Um so there clearly is lag. Um, this paper, I suppose, suffers from a, a common problem of book history, that, which is that um, it's easier to figure out what was published than what was read. Um, and so I don't have any kind of uh, sort of firm way of approaching that. Do you have a sense of how you would? That's actually the question I'm more interested yeah. in. Like, not that I think you have it solved, because I, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's... Um, yeah, I guess, the, so um, what I think that 
one would have to do and what I've tried to do um, to some extent is to you know look for evidence of reading experiences that you could put alongside the evidence of the contents. Um, now those uh, reading experiences are not that easy to come across um, and uh, I've used the reading experience database as a way to start thinking about this but you know there's, there's not that much there um, that at least that you can sort of readily identify as anthology reading. Um, so that's that's what you need to do, but it's difficult to do. Um, also, though, I want to say that I think the um, although it's hard to find uh, reading experience evidence of the kind that's you know someone writing in a diary, you know, I read this poem in an anthology today. Um, what we do know for sure is that anthologies were very often used in school settings, were very often given as prizes in schools and Sunday schools and so on. Um, and so I think we can safely say that anthologies occupy a privileged kind of reading space. And that's because a lot of readers encounter poems first in anthologies, they often encounter them early on in anthologies, and they often encounter them in institutional settings, like in educational settings, that kind of, you know, give the anthology a certain status. I think that looking at anthology reading would be not just looking at anthology reading, but we also would be looking at, you know, um, protocols of reading that are fostered in the anthologies, but then extend beyond the anthologies. That's great. One at the back. And yeah. Two questions. Um, to follow up on an earlier question about publishers, um, do you have you found evidence of certain publishers who didn't publish anthologies because there was a stigma and that kind of somehow tainted their reputation as a publisher? My second question is, could you talk about the role of memorization? You talked about recitation um, and short form, so short form and memorization and stigma. Yeah. Um, okay. The uh, <coughs> the question about stigma. Um, I cannot answer. I have I've not found any uh, information about that, but uh, that's that's not proof one way or the other. I just haven't found that. Um, the question about memorization is really interesting, um, and it clearly that's one of the things that's going on is that these poems, at least in a subset of anthologies, are designed to be suitable for recitation and for and often for memorization, and so they they just have to be short. Um, not that Victorian people weren't capable of memorising very long poems in some cases, but uh, often that's one reason why shorter poems are preferred. Um, Catherine Robson, uh, in her book Heartbeats, uh, Everyday Life and the Memorised Poem, um, writes really interestingly about the effect that memorisation has on our understanding of the poems. Um, both, she writes very interestingly on the way in which a poem is sort of taken into the life of an individual through memorization, but also how a poem like Casabianca, which actually is not that metrically regular, she argues, kind of becomes metrically regular through memorization and recitation, that it sort of the um, repeated, because the, the, um, the meter is used as a mnemonic device, repeated memorization and recitation and repeated hearing of the poem recited kind of beats the metrical irregularity out of it. Um, and so we should think of uh, Casabianca not as, uh, as a metrically regular poem so much as a poem that has become metrically regular through the cultural practices of reception that it's been uh, subjected to. Mm -hmm. 
was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the poems that were originally embedded songs and then were published in the anthologies. Uh, so you mentioned one of them had the title Ballad. Was that mm. common? Did most of them get titled Ballad or Song or the first line? And what can you tell us about the meter of these poems or the speaker, if it's an I or a we or anything yeah. else? Um, so it did, one thing that we did uh, as we went through these anthologies was to record uh, if there was an editorial title given to if the poem had its original title or an editorial title or no title, if it was attributed or not, um, and uh, any editor or any paratexts that frame it. Um, so there's, and there's a lot, you know, I've used that information in writing this paper, um, but I, there's a lot more that I haven't used that could be uh, investigated. Um, so retitling of poems is very common. Um, especially in anthologies that organize their material thematically. So if um, your you know, anthology is going to reprint 10 different descriptions of the sea, then you're quite likely to, re, you know, to retitle those lines from Child Harold to the sea or address to the ocean or something like that. This also has the interesting um, effect of sometimes disguising which long poems these things come from. It, sometimes it makes them appear like short poems um, and uh, this, I think this particularly is interesting to me with Don Juan, which is a poem that in many Victorian readers would not have wanted to knowingly read, but many of them ended up reading bits of it that unknowingly because lines were excerpted in the anthologies. And there's um, uh, those lines in particular, um, there's music in the sighing of a reed, there's music in the gushing of a rill, there's music in all things if men have ears, their, their earth is but an echo of the spheres. Those lines were repeatedly republished in anthologies under generic titles like music, music in nature, something like that. Um, and sometimes alongside other lyrics by Byron, so that their readers would not necessarily have known that they were reading that most scandalous of poems, Don Juan. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I think those editorial titles were doing various things um, and sometimes kind of shaping the reading in interesting ways. Find any correlation between the the uh, poems that were commonly anthologized, leading to more reprints of the volumes in which they originally appeared, appeared, or conversely, if poems from a specific volume would not regularly anthologize, did they go out of print more quickly? Um, that it would be really interesting to do, and I have not done it. Um, I think, I mean, what for Byron, Hemans, and Shelley, there, um, you know, you get collected editions and one volume reprint editions coming, one volume collected or, or nearly collected editions coming out. Um, then, but there are also selected editions, and it would be so they don't, these poems don't disappear, is what I'm saying, but it would be really interesting to then look at the uh, contents pages of selected editions and see whether the poems that get featured in the anthologies then become kind of indispensable poems for selected editions. Um, that is great. Now I want to go away and do that. <laughs> I, I, I've not, not done that yet. But, but if it, 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 it would be great. Yeah. <laughs> did, did some anthologies call themselves miscellanies? Was that a, a term of credit and honor? Uh, or is there something dismissive about about that term, a mere, a mere 
the Selenium. I'm thinking of Coleridge describing the is it the Biographia as an immethodical Selenium, mm. uh, and that's an apologetic term for him. Yeah. Um, or was it gems and bouquets and? That's interesting. I yeah, I think. astray. I, but I think I think you're right that the miscellany is not that commonly used. One of the things so the term a critic could use to describe Yes. It. Yeah, no that's right. And that's and it's interesting that they you know it's it's the term that's <coughs> there as sort of miscellaneous poems at the back of volumes uh, you know in Hemans and Shelley's works. But I don't think we see it very often as a title word in these anthologies. Now, so one thing that, that was really interesting what, that um, I said, you know, we identified a corpus of 210 anthologies and moved on, but actually that process took about three or four months because um, we the first thing we had to figure out was how do you find them? They, they don't all call themselves anthologies. Um, and so actually the first thing we had to do was to reconstruct a kind of you know, Publishers' discourse of anthologies from the 19th century, and they did use some of those words you've just mentioned, you know, bouquets and gems, and uh, and so we sort of produced a, a list of these words and then searched them. Uh, of course, and if you search bouquets, you get you know all these kind of botanical books as well. So then we we searched those words in conjunction with poetry, poetic poem, literary literature, and so on, um, and. Uh, that was how we produced our corpus. Um, I, I don't know if the corpus is representative. I don't really know how um, large the sample is compared to the population. Um, so again, that's you know a, something where I sort of I'm, want to be hesitant, or not hesitant, but I want to want to circumscribe what kinds of claim we can make on the basis of this data. Um, but. Yeah, that was the, the sort of the first challenge was to recover this whole discourse of keywords that signalled to Victorian readers that they were buying an anthology, um, but which don't necessarily you know, still work. My for question us. was was prologue to just an observation. Uh, by eighteen fifties, poets were producing faux anthologies uh, under their own name. A medley mm. was the subtitle of Tennyson gave to the Princess, mm. uh, eighteen forty seven. Or so, which is pretty close to a miscellany. And you open it up, and it's got these lyrics, and it's got these blank verse passages, and people talk about the recitations that happen there. Yeah. Or uh, uh, some fairly long books of poems uh, as you get into the 1860s and 1870s look to the uh, to the eye as if they are anthologies by, mm. by different hands. Yeah. It became something that poets started to uh, imitate. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I Tennyson's poems chiefly lyrical as well, you know, sort of picks up perhaps in, in another way on that. Um, yeah, uh, that's very interesting. Thank you. In your corpus, if you look at it chronologically, do you sense there was any kind of wave in production, so a certain decade or a time period where there were more um, anthologies published compared to others? Um, we, so let me just check my figures. So what we we found it was pretty um, consistent. We in the first 25 years we identified 78 anthologies in the second 
25 years, 75 anthologies. In the third 25 years, 51 anthologies. So it's a slight tail off again. Um, and we deliberately didn't. Uh, you know, one of the things we considered and rejected was taking a certain number of anthologies from each decade or something like that, um, or identifying sort of sample years to drill down into. Um, instead, we just gathered them in a big pile and saw what what we got. Um, but but even so, doing that, if you then if you graph the anthologies by publication year, they're reasonably well distributed across uh, the century. There's um, it, it does seem like they gain a little bit in popularity um, and they drop off a little bit in, uh, at the very end. Um, but I wouldn't want to press too hard on that because um, that would own, that would well, or, or rather I would want to just say that tells you something about the number of anthologies published, not the number of anthologies read. Um, and one of the things that that would, uh, would not register is the importance of Paul Graves' Golden Treasury, which you know becomes very, very popular and um, goes through many editions from mid-century onwards. Um, and so that's you know it might if the fact that fewer anthologies are published at the in the end might be a sign that let fewer anthologies are selling more copies. Market consolidation rather than the publishers right. by merging together and get fewer. Um, yeah. Well, I'll ask you something about um, uh, anthologizing. Um, well, there's an anthology. You're studying anthologies on the one hand, but it's also anthologizing. I'm wondering, do you, did you just look at poetic anthologies? It had to be all poetry. Or it could be any place that a little poem might appear, like miso literary miscellanies, gift books, annuals. This seems yeah. like those are candidates for an, for anthologizing. Even you know, rather than it has to be strictly a gathering of poetic. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, we um, we became aware. This is why you know we thought that sort of finding the corpus was going to be the easy bit, and it turned out to involve many complicated questions. Um, and one of those was that you know, we, we rapidly became aware that it, we were not so much identifying anthologies as deciding what was an anthology and what wasn't for our purposes. And so we tried to formulate some rules about how to do that. And um, we excluded um, things that were uh, songbooks we excluded, we excluded um, things that were too so specific to a particular place or a particular topic that they seemed unlikely to yield any interesting results. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I would have to look back and see if anything slipped through the net, but yeah, we basically excluded things that contained prose, they basically had to be anthologies of poetry. Just poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we didn't want and, and th that may be you know, one reason why we didn't see the word miscellany so often, is that we, we didn't want sort of gift books, and I mean, some of them are designed to be gifts, but yeah. you know, we did, there were other sort of genres that we were trying to exclude. Right. Miscellany probably is a miscellany of miscellaneous genres as well as, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. We're about out of time. We've gone over our time, but uh, let's thank Tom one more. <laughs>